The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is Somerville, Climate, Action. And with me today from Somerville are Vanessa Rule and Eric Becker, of the Somerville Climate Action Group. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, Rob. Great intro music. (laughs) Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Rob. It's good to have you both here. Vanessa, um, start us off with um, how did you get started in working to address climate change? Yep. So um, I I have a background in uh, environmental science, and I think at at my core I've always been... uh, uh, social a- social change agent, um, but so about uh, ten years ago, uh, I became a mother, and I saw inconvenient truth. And the combination of the two had a sort of an explosive impact on my on my direction. Um, I realized that I, you know, that this was the only thing I really could work on with good conscience uh, in my life, especially given my background um, in my training as a, as somebody who had studied this stuff. And I uh, decided to get involved and went to a climate action meeting in my community and have been there ever since. So when you moved to Somerville, you, you learned about this, um, this group. Tell us yep. about your first impressions of the group or where they were at and stuff. Well, so the group, Somerville Climate Action, uh, this was in 2000, I guess it wasn't 10 years ago, but it was in 2007, um, and... Uh, the group really had had a very difficult time engaging the community on climate change. Um, I think Inconvenient Truth, uh, the Al Gore movie, really was a, a tipping point for a lot of people who um, had been interested in the environment, like me, uh, but who didn't realize how critical climate change was going to be to everything else, not just environmental issues, but social and economic issues. So um, once I came on, it became, uh, I think easier than it had been for my predecessors um, who founded the group um, over 10 years ago um, to engage the community and, and start, you know, getting people to pay attention. Because there was all this publicity around the movie and people were starting to talk about it and stuff like that. Yep. And, that, and so and what the, were the some of the early actions the, that you went on to do? Excuse me? What were some of the, the, what, so what were some of the first things that happened with the, uh, um, some of it with well, how about um, why don't I ask Eric? Um, oh, is, is this about the time of? I was going to ask Eric tell us about the Step It Up program. Was this about yeah, I mean, that I think same time as starting up? Yeah, consciousness around climate change was 
was emerging pretty quickly in, in that 2006-2007 timeframe um, with Inconvenient Truth and uh, the price of oil spiking in 2005 uh, and, and a new consciousness about, you know, lim- limits to, to the amount of oil we were using and, and the combination of those things. And then um, in the beginning of 2007, Bill McKibben, who is a professor at Middlebury College in Vermont, um, came up with an idea for a nationwide uh, day of action uh, in April of 2007 called Step It Up. And the idea was to get what they hoped were 100 actions around the country where the message would be uh, to our leaders in Washington to pass legislation to cut carbon emissions by 80% by 2050, which at that point was what we thought it would take to address climate change. Um, It turned out that there were 1,400 gatherings on that day, on April 14th, 2007, around the country. Um, And in our community, we had about 400 people turning out in Davis Square, which is one of the central locations, um, and combination of music and festivities and speakers um, around climate change and, and some, some political leaders were there as well. And um, I think what happened with that was it really catalyzed a group, a core group of people to get more involved in climate advocacy on an ongoing basis. Uh, so the, the group really um, coalesced around that event and then uh, after the event was looking for further opportunities to take action. So it was a pretty powerful organizing tool having that event. Yeah, it was. I saw the photographs of all the people assembled in, in Davis Square. It's very impressive. Um, is there a site that people can go to to learn more about the, the work of uh, Somerville Action, Somerville Climate Action? Yes, if you go to www.somervilleclimateaction.org, you can find out all about what we're doing. Oh, that's great. Um, SomervilleClimateAction.org. So um, Eric was saying, you know, what a success that Step It Up was in April 2007 and how that um, Somerville Climate Action really started meeting on a regular basis. And um, this is about, this is a time when you were rising in leadership of the group and what kinds of things were were happening and, and how did it kind of change over time? Yep. Well, I think one of the things that uh, I discovered quickly um, is that I, you know, may have had some clear ideas about um, what we needed to do as a group, but that really the group is really uh, the, you know, the sum uh, of its parts and that uh, one of the, the best ways to to capitalize on the, en- on the energy there um, and people's willingness to volunteer, because it's an all-volunteer group, is to really go where people's interests lie. And so that's, you know, that's what we did with the Step It Up event is uh, when we first started meeting, we, we thought we could be going different directions, but clearly that's where the energy of the group uh, was on that day, and it proved to be really successful, and that's one of the major sort of organizing principles that we use in, um, you know, drawing in new people and deciding what uh, projects that we choose to focus on. I think it's been really successful. And that's a principle that I'm realizing um, needs to be applied more and more as communities uh, and activists try to address climate change um, is not expecting people to fit into our agenda, but really going and finding out 
uh, what people's concerns are, the realities of their lives, and then um, helping, you know, to connect climate issues, uh, which really are pervasive and, and impact everything to people's concerns. Um, the other, the other uh, piece of it is to, to make sure that whatever you do uh, is fun because this is really about building community. Um, you know, people keep coming back to the group uh, because we have a great time together and, and we have a sense of efficacy and uh, we've all become really good friends. Well, so I think that's how do you, part of the key to our go, success. How, how do you go from just having a rally? You know, April 2007 was a huge rally. Rallies are fun. You all get pumped up together. It sounds like you shifted into a phase of trying to listen more or get information. How do you deal with disparate groups? Well, uh, by listening, uh, by joining, by not going in and telling them uh, what what we want them to do, but really hearing what they're working on and uh, working to understand how it connects. So, for example, um, the Mystic River Watershed um, is somebody that we just partnered with on a on a local project. They're interested in water quality um, of uh, the Mystic River watershed, in uh, which spans a huge uh, percentage of the Greater Boston area. And um, we had an event that connected climate change um, and the fact that climate change is going to result in increased um, increased water on the ground um, and and big storms because as the planet heats up, you get more moisture in the atmosphere, so you get more water coming down and more intensely at every um, in every storm event. Um, and so that was a you know that was an example of, of partnering uh, where they got to um, to give visibility to their issue, um, and we educated people about you know why dealing with flooding issues and keeping waterways healthy um, is important, not just for you know keeping water of your keeping water out of your basement, um, but also for the fisheries and um, and for, you know, for climate. Vanessa, what was the activity that you did with the Mystic River Watershed? People so, um, uh, it was, it was a, we called it uh, Depave the Way for Our Climate, and uh, we took, uh, to, took up 500 square feet of asphalt um, in people's cool. backyards. We looked for some public sites, um, weren't able to come up with any at this point, but we're really uh, hopeful that in the future we will. We're working, um, there are members of the city of Somerville government who are interested in helping us do this. Um, and we, you know, Somerville is uh, 77% paved over. It's one of the most densely populated cities in the country. It's got very, very little open space. Um, and so, you know, for many reasons, taking up uh, pavement makes a lot of sense. And this is a climate issue for the reasons I mentioned in terms of adaptation. You know, you get more uh, flooding, more storms. Uh, pavement is um, retains heat, so as the city uh, heats up in the summer, uh, the less pavement you have, the more comfortable people are going to be. Um, that has an impact on people's energy bills. You know, maybe they need to use less air conditioning. Um, yes. You know, as food prices rise uh, internationally because of climate events like the fires in Moscow this summer, um, you know, being able to have some soil and, and healthy land to grow food in is important. Um, so that's, you know, the, there are so many ways to partner with different groups. And we also partnered with Groundwork Somerville, uh, which connects um, inner city youth to uh, environmental issues and, and the creation of green jobs. We can continue talking about uh, the depaving activity that you did, um, that both of you helped run with. So Vanessa was explaining that, you know, this is a, a, a sea change from 
usually organizations just have a rally and everyone gets together and they all rally against city hall or they all, you know, rally around something. And instead, or this time, um, Somerville climate action listened to the needs of the mystic river watershed association and with the problems of excessive runoff and came up with a very different activity than rally, which is depaving. And, um, so, it sounds okay. Great, we're just going to go out and pull up some pavement. But <laughs> how did you how did you make it happen? I mean, there's a bit of logistics that go into, you know, you just can't start pulling yeah. up. You know, well, something. first I want to say that it wasn't. I mean, the the trigger for this wasn't so much actually listening to the um, Mystic River, although you know we quickly saw the connection to Mystic River. But really, it right. was about addressing um, the quality of life of Somerville residents and. You know, I live in Somerville, and I know how uncomfortable this summer was. Um, and then the other piece of it is, you know, as a local group, our frustration, you know, we're doing all this hard work, and our leaders um, nationally and internationally are, uh, you know, our elected leaders are really not doing what needs to get done to address climate change. And so uh, there was something symbolic about breaking up pavement and taking out our frustrations. <laughs> Uh, was that sort of what, one of the impetus was sort of the symbolism of taking things into our own hands. Um, yeah, the, the image of you wielding a pickaxe at the pavement is one I will not quickly forget. Yeah. And also, I mean, to put it in context, the, the event was, was part of um, an, an international day of action, again, that um, led by 350.org, um, calling on 10-10-10, October 10th, 2010, for um, people to get to work in their own communities on climate change since our leaders or so-called leaders aren't, um, aren't really addressing it in a meaningful way to, to send them the message, if we can get to work, so can you. And so we were looking for a project that would be um, concrete, so to speak, um, something that, that we could have where we can have an impact on that one day. And um, other groups did uh, solar installations or uh, weatherized homes or public buildings, and we came up with this idea. But the, what was really compelling about the day was that you had over 7,000 events in 188 countries. So you felt like you were something part of, a, part of a, a truly global movement, even though your own activity was very locally focused um, on how can I make a difference in my own community, you felt connected to what was going on around the world, which was a, a pretty powerful, um, powerful feeling. Yeah, and the magic of that is as, you know, as you're transforming the community um, at a very physical level, um, you're, you know, the building, you're building community, you're building connections that are really important, um, and they're going to become increasingly important as we face, you know, climate shocks. Um, Vanessa, we're going to have to interrupt you, and we'll be right back with Vanessa Rule and Eric Becker after the break. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together now, all together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network keep listening to the green talk network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow the green talk network spread the green You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking today with two of the many members of Somerville Climate Action, uh, Vanessa Rule and Eric Becker uh, of Somerville, Massachusetts. And uh, we were talking about uh, the activities that have been done to address the, the problems of climate change and develop awareness on, um, on all those issues. And a big player, Vanessa said at the beginning, was, was, to, um, was the uh, Al Gore movie, but subsequently, and at the same time, as Eric explained to us, Bill McKibben from uh, Middlebury College uh, has been um, kind of Mr. Rolling Thunder of gathering more and more uh, impressive activities going on um, and resulting in, after Step It Up, uh, the creation of 350 
dot org, and that's a reference to 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. Is has been determined by scientists Jim Hansen and others as that's kind of the upper level to a healthy planet Earth, and just like we want our bodies at 98.6, and if we go above that, we have run a fever. Um, uh, the scientists feel that more parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere than 350 is not good for um, for life on on planet Earth. Uh, so this 350.org organization, uh, Eric. Uh, so uh, tell us a little more about. Um, Bill McKibbins and 350's work? Well, 350 really got going with the Step It Up rally that we mentioned in 2007. And um, after that event, um, there came out a study um, by James Hansen, the NASA uh, scientist uh, and um, leading climate scientist globally, um, with a couple of his colleagues that actually pinpointed that level, 350 parts per million, as the highest uh, safe level of carbon in the atmosphere. Now, some people think it's actually even lower than that, but that was the clear line in the sand. And unfortunately, we're already at 392 parts per million. Uh, most of human civilization was, uh, we, we lived with a, a climate that had between 270 and 300 parts per million. That's the pre-industrial level, and then through burning all these fossil fuels, coal and oil, et cetera, over the past 150 or so years, we've raised that from that 270, 290 level to 392, and we need to now get it back down to 350. So that means that through um, uh, we need to stop burning fossil fuels immediately and let the, the atmosphere do what it does to, to rebalance so that that starts coming down again. Uh, and so... 350.org was formed uh, when McKibben saw this study and realized that that's the number that we need to focus on in terms of developing policies, both at a national and an international level. If we're going to do a climate treaty, we need to, to target that number. It doesn't matter how much emissions we cut individually. If we don't get to 350, it's not going to have the impact we need it to have. So it gave us a uh, the movement, a clear focus on uh, what our actions need to add up to. And, uh, and so it's been a, a way of, of rallying people around um, uh, a, a one 1.1 fact and uh, has been effective in catalyzing people around the globe. As I said, the most recent 350.org event, which was on October 10th, had, 100, had events in 188 countries. So this isn't a U.S. movement. This is a global movement. And, um, and, so that, and that's what it's going to take to, to make a big difference. So people are alarmed about the amount of carbon in our atmosphere, and they express it in 188 countries around the world? Right. And, and in a lot of cities in the U.S. Yeah, tremendous. I mean, I, I don't know that what the number of events in the U.S. was, but uh, there were, you know, at least a couple thousand events in the U.S. alone. And the, you know, the idea is to to build a movement that will um, get to the point where the politicians and our so-called leaders have to have to follow us rather than the other way around. That exactly. uh, they realize that people are going to vote on this issue because it's so critical to. Um, our own future, and and certainly that of our children. 
Yeah, I know the U.S. government has not picked up the ball on this um, on this problem, and they need you know the initiative from the citizenry to speak out and hold them accountable. And so this has been a remarkable increasing in public awareness that has come about with the 350.org people. And and we're so cool right here in Somerville that you know uh, we actually got to pull up cement. Now, Vanessa, how did you find a piece of cement to pull up? Or uh, we, we put out calls everywhere to our networks, uh, contacted the city of Somerville, and uh, we had some brave volunteers, or, uh, or lucky, volunteer, lucky, lucky volunteers who got some free labor uh, to turn their paved backyards back to, uh, to soil that, where they can now plant nice gardens. Um, and it was much more uh, of an involved process. Uh, it was, this was our first depaving um, it was much more involved than we had anticipated. Uh, we got some great help from a group uh, based in Portland, Oregon, called Depave, uh, that has a, a great website with a lot of resources. So that helped guide us. And then within our group, we have a few um, hands-on experts who who know about construction and and those things. So uh, so we got some sites that we looked at and figured out the feasibility of pu- of pulling some up. Uh, one site that didn't work out. Uh, but that we do hope to tackle down the road uh, was a backyard uh, covered in concrete, which in some ways can be harder to take up than than asphalt, which sort of breaks up easily. Uh, mm. But what was under the concrete, um, and that's something we hadn't thought about when we were thinking about depaving, is what's under the surface you're taking up uh, was coal ash left over from the time where Somerville homes were heated by coal furnaces, and uh, residents would take the ash and dump it into their backyards. And that potentially has, you know, heavy metals in it, and so you have to really be careful um, how you deal with it. You don't want to expose um, people to worse hazards by when you pull up the, the pavement. Exactly, yeah. Um, so there you were with this piece of asphalt in the backyard, or whatever it was in the backyard of someone, and I was impressed that you had had figured out that people are only going to be able to labor on this for about two hours, and so you put together a schedule or... Yep. Well, we had people who had done this before, so they knew, you know, that this is hard physical labor. Uh, we got about 50 volunteers, which was exactly the right amount. Um, it turns out, although we had to, we had to negotiate uh, the pace of the day. At some point, uh, we were going too fast, and we wanted to make sure that we left some work to do for the people that were coming for the two o'clock shift. Uh, but the way we went about it was, we we did have this was a very um, thick asphalt, about three to four inches thick, and so we pre-cut. Uh, the the backyard with a diamond saw to create a grid, and that was the only um, non physical labor that that we used. Uh, that was the only fossil fuel based um, uh, source yes. of depaving. And then we took turns, sort of, you know, we it was sort of self organized, but there, there were shifts of about ten people uh, working to take up squares and lifting them into the dumpster. Is how, it and how big were the squares? They were like two feet or something. Yep, about two by two. Yeah, two by two. Yeah, and in in some cases, and it all worked out. You got it done, and yep. No, it, it was really fun, and uh, you know, again, I think people people had a great time um, working elbow to elbow. Transcends, you know, a lot of the stuff. Sometimes you can't get through through conversations, and drew lots of different types of people. Uh, I, I don't think. Everybody there was necessarily a climate activist or somebody aware even of the of the severity of the of climate change. 
Right. Uh, but, you know, it was a great way for people to meet each other, start talking about this stuff, connecting the dots for themselves. And um, so I, I really feel like these experiential um, events are critical to building this movement. You're right, because they're much more satisfying than going to a rally because you see mm-hmm. results of what happened. Right. You're building skills and, you know, you're doing something tangible that you can, at the end of the day, you say, okay, I made a difference today. Yeah. You made a difference to the atmospheric carbon level for the future by yeah. opening up. You had a wonderful educational poster um, and some uh, other yes. materials. Yes, we're lucky to have in our group uh, a woman named Lenny Armstrong, who's a great visual artist, and uh, she asked, or she, she showed us sort of what we have right now and, you know, asked, well, where do you want to go? What do you want in terms of what do you want your soil to look like? What do you want your city to look like? And so she superimposed sort of the before and after um, and made a really powerful poster that we hope to upload to the SomervilleClimateAction.org website uh, for people to see and use, hopefully, um, for their own events. Uh, yeah, the Lenny other thing was I wanted to mention was the, just the, the importance of restoring natural systems in dealing with climate change. I think a lot of uh, climate action right now is, is really focused and framed around reducing energy consumption and technology. And we absolutely need to be building renewables, increasing energy efficiency. Um, but the other piece is, you know, that we really need to heal uh, the planet that, that allowed us to, um, to thrive as a species. And that if we let nature help us, it, you know, it's going to, if we help nature, it will help us uh, bring down that, those, uh, those carbon levels back into the ground. Um, and that's really important. And so that's the other piece of the depaving is, you know, as you, as you increase green space, um, you allow nature to take it back down into the ground where the carbon belongs. Yes, exactly. Helping nature in active ways. We'll be right back after this break with Vanessa Rule and Eric Becker. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. 
Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. My guests today are Eric Becker and Vanessa Rule of Somerville Climate Action, and the group has gone from holding rallies to a new form of conservation, which isn't just cut down on how much carbon you're exhausting, but literally take a pickaxe and depave some, remove some of the cement or asphalt to open up the ground so it can breathe and it can absorb carbon uh, and create carbon sinks. Uh, Eric, uh, you also have been working with... Um, city government on uh, what's become known as the Climate Emergency Initiative. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, we have uh, submitted a proposed resolution uh, to the mayor and the Board of Aldermen in the city of Somerville um, that's based uh, in part on work that was done in Cambridge in 2009, where a group of uh, citizens uh, went to city council and got a resolution passed calling uh, our current predicament a climate emergency and calling for the city to take uh, action um, to address it. And what they did in in Cambridge was they put together a a climate congress with about 100 representatives uh, to generate ideas for how the city can more aggressively address uh, climate change. And so we put together a similar resolution um, calling for something a little bit different, but uh, also calling uh, for the city to step up its re- um, uh, actions around climate change and preparing for changes that are going to be coming. Um, and we are calling for a climate summit that would include all of the city's department heads as well as uh businesses and residents from Somerville to come together for a day, probably early in 2011, to, uh, again, generate ideas and also raise climate issues and energy issues on the radar screen of all these department heads so it's really, uh, it, it gets into their thinking and their decision-making and uh, certainly the, the planning for the, uh, how the, our city is going to evolve over time and um, working it into policy decisions. So it's really just trying to raise the level of consciousness and integrate it into decision-making throughout the city, both city government and businesses and residents as well. And it would be, instead of being a Congress, it would be like a charrette, a gathering of people um, thinking quickly and stuff like that? Yeah, we, we still have uh, work to do on the exact format, but that's right. And, uh, I mean, it could involve also community meetings at the at the ward level with uh, individual aldermen meeting with, with residents and 
businesses in their particular areas of the city to talk about it um, either before or after the summit, but uh, that's to be worked out soon. We're working with uh, the mayor's office who uh, to put together a steering committee uh, that will create the the summit. Uh, we're hoping to have the resolution itself passed through the Board of Aldermen in one of their next two meetings, so in the, in the next month or so. And then so, the steering committee would take it from there to, to actually create the, the events. Right, right. Well, it's going to take some thought because you were saying earlier in the program that when Davis Square and Somerville convened for Step It Up, how many people came to that rally? We had about 400 people at that. Right. So you might get 400 people coming to a charrette gathering, uh, so you're going to need a big facility or something you know. Right, the mayor's office. The mayor actually said that that uh, that's something that that he can help out with. Uh, we're we're right next to Tufts University as well, so there are good facilities for um, this type of meeting. Yeah, I but see hopefully, the... hopefully we do get four hundred people because that, that's you know that's how how important it is, and and we need as many smart people um, bringing a variety of perspectives uh, so that we make sure that what we come up with is going to going to be put into practice. I see that the uh, Somerville mayor has been pretty active on climate change issues. Yeah, he's he actually in uh when he was an alderman before he was mayor, um he actually created a resolution um or passed a resolution through the board creating a climate commission which advises the city, it's a, a group of residents that advises the city on climate issues and then when he became mayor, he did join the um, Mayor's Alliance on Climate uh, signing a pledge back in 2005, I believe it was, um, to for the city to meet the Kyoto Protocol uh, targets of a, I believe, 10% reduction in carbon emissions by the city below 1990 levels by 2012, and uh, we haven't quite met those. There have been some good programs put in place by the city um, addressing in particular their own buildings, uh, energy use. Uh, there's been a lot of retrofits to reduce energy consumption in their own buildings, but there's a lot more that can be done in the city. But it's a lot of work. He's really driving the the process to address all those issues. That's, that's commendable. Now, Vanessa was saying earlier how that Somerville action, climate action, you know, learned by listening to Mystic River Watershed, um, before doing activity. And it sounds like this, uh, climate emergency initiative would would not just be the public telling government, but that you would set it up so that the members of gov- of city government can express to you their concerns and their ideas on how to be more uh, carbon neutral. Or yep, well, and actually, I mean, we really want to try to get the whole system in a conversation, so not just city government, but. Um, but, you know, wide variety of residents. Uh, Somerville has a, a huge immigrant population um, and, and a sizable low-income community um, that really suffers from environmental justice issues. Um, and, you know, we want to create those connections between... Uh, Somerville has some of the highest uh, respiratory and cardiovascular disease in the nation uh, because of its proximity to two major highways. And, um, you know, we... we we know the mayor uh, and um, the, the city in general is very interested in, in addressing health issues. Uh, there's a, a nationally recognized program called uh, Shape Up Somerville that's focused on reducing obesity rates in children um, and improving air quality. And so this is an opportunity, you know, looking at climate change um, 
to really address uh, all of these issues in a systemic way, um, not just by reducing our carbon emissions, but going back to the depaving by uh, restoring a more natural environment, you know, where you have green space uh, that's and trees and plants that are uh, cleaning the air, um, putting carbon back into the ground, and, and helping really restore the natural systems that human beings are a part of. Um, one of the things I get concerned about when I look at the direction of climate policy and the, and the, di- the climate dialogue um, is that it, it's still very human-centric, and we forget that we're part of this larger uh, natural system that we need to work with. And, and as I said before, the more we can work with it, the better off we're going to be. And by working with it, you don't just mean carpooling. You mean taking a pickaxe and some levers. Yeah, no, restoring and, it, you know. So um, there are a lot of what's called ecosystem services that we've taken for granted because they're not uh, factored into our economic system. So, you know, one of the things Somerville's going to be affected by is sea level rise because we're really close to uh, the, the Boston, Har- Boston Harbor and we're part of this estuary and there are areas of Somerville that used to be wetland that would absorb, um, you know, water from rising tides and and as we see more intense storms and probably hurricanes um, and we experience storm surge flooding, you know, probably close to half of the city at times, uh, we need to be thinking about how, you know, we, we redesign our city um, so that it can, it can um, adapt and, and sort of be resilient in the face of, of those changes, those physical changes. And a lot of the solutions lie in restoring the natural environment. More green spaces for greater resiliency. That's right. Uh, Vanessa, it's been fabulous to have you and Eric um, uh, talk with us about the work of Somerville Climate Action. Um, I I wish you both the best. um, And um, what should people be looking for uh, in the future? Eric, you want to take that one? Well, um, I mean, I think that there's, there's just... Um, so much to be done, and uh, hopefully through the the climate summit, we will generate new ideas, um, new projects, and bring in uh, more community members who want to get together and, and get to work on these things. So there's there's a lot of energy. I think the depaving has has generated um, more demand for you know other homeowners want to do the same thing and. I think people had a lot of fun doing it, so I think hopefully we'll continue to do that and look for other ways to really make the connections between um, what's going on in Somerville and what's going on globally and, and give people an opportunity to, to pitch in. Well, with the winter coming, it looks like we're going to have some snowballing with uh, Somerville Climate Action. That sounds great. We will. <laughs> so. Things that keep building. Uh, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with, to uh, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. When we return, Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions will give us an update. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, with me from Washington, D.C. is Ocean Champions Mike Dunmire. Hello, Mike. Hey, Rob. How are you today? I'm doing great. We've been hearing about depaving uh, Somerville, and I think it's something we all should do more of in our communities. Uh, today is uh, Wednesday before the November 2nd Tuesday elections. So um, I bet you've been busy, and as the elections approach, who is uh, Ocean Champions endorsing, and what can you tell us about some of those endorsements? Well, I mean, as, as you know all too well, Rob, Ocean Champions is the only ocean group that endorses and supports uh, candidates that we think will be strong, strong ocean members when they get to Washington, D.C., because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if science is on your side or the facts are on your side or if you're the best advocate in the world if the people who you're advocating to don't care about your issue. Um, so we're trying very hard to, to get as many pro-ocean candidates in Congress as we can, and this election really is going to matter for the oceans. Um, but I thought I'd talk about there are a couple. People can go to oceanchampions.org and take a look at all of our endorsements. We've got about 32 out there across the House and the Senate. But I wanted to call out a couple that speak to the strategy for building political power for the oceans in terms of beyond just good ocean work, uh, what are some things to continue. To, uh, to consider. And uh, one of those folks is a guy named Nick Rahal. He's a Democrat from uh, West Virginia's 3rd District. And uh, I think it's obvious for people to ask, well, you know, why would you endorse him? He's, he's not coastal. Uh, and in fact, he's from a state whose economy is based on coal. So, you know, if he wants to stay in office, there are going to be times when he'll have to take positions that are not exactly where we would want them to be. Um, well, we, we endorse him. Uh, because, first of all, he is the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, which is one of the two or three committees in the House that covers most issues that concern the ocean. Uh, and his leadership of that committee has been transformational when you compare it to the guy who sat in that chairman's 
uh, chair before him, who was Richard Pombo. And you know, oh my God, Mr. Pombo. Yes. You know, whereas Mr. Pombo wanted to extract everything the earth had and and then some. Uh, under Mr. Rahal, the the Natural Resources Committee has become a much more conservation focused committee. Um, Mr. Rahal led a strengthening through a reauthorization of Magnus and Stevens governing U.S. fisheries. Uh, he's passed some very good bills, and including helping to get our harmful algal bloom bill passed. And he just led the passage of the Clear Act, which would establish the nation's first ocean conservation fund. So uh, even though he's not on the coast, he cares very much about the oceans, cares about fish, and his committee under his leadership has been good on ocean issues. So that's why we, we look at him there. Um, his opponent, by the name, by the way, is named Spike Maynard, and I also just have a personal issue. We really can't elect a congressman named Spike, can we? I mean, that just <laughs> that, that doesn't make sense. No. Um, the other guy, Rob, there are two other folks I wanted to mention if we've got time, and, and one uh, is Frank Craddeville. And uh, Frank Craddeville is a uh, freshman congressman from Maryland's 1st District, which has Ocean City, Maryland. It's, it, it's got uh, the eastern shore of Maryland along the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and uh, he's in an extremely tight race with uh, a guy named Andy Harris, who would likely become the next Pombo if he wins. Uh, Andy Harris, as a state senator in Maryland, had... Uh, one of the worst records on Chesapeake Bay health of any senator, constantly siding with polluters, trying to uh, vote against measures that would reduce phosphorus and nitrogen flowing into the bay, voting against better energy standards for cars and, and appliances. Um, just a bad, bad ocean guy. Uh, Mr. Craddeville, on the other hand, in his freshman year, has been just incredible. He really he's, he's been there for all of the ocean issues that Ocean Champions has cared about, he was a leader on the harmful algal boom and, and hypoxia bill that we cared so much about. He's introduced several bills that improve Chesapeake Bay health, and he just passed a bill to protect the national wildlife uh, refuges across the country. And uh, uh, he, of course, voted for cap-and-trade, even though he's in a very conservative district, and that vote may wind up costing him the election, voting for the climate bill, I should say, for the Waxman-Markey mm -hmm. bill. Um, you know, showing that he, he votes his conscience. He knew that was the right thing to do, and, and he's been there. Uh, and, you know, we've been spending a lot of time on this race, and so people might ask, well, he's just a freshman. He might not have that much power in Congress, um, you know, as compared to someone like Mr. Rahal. And that's true. Seniority actually helps, and committee leadership is important. But uh, first of all, you have just a very strong ocean guy here who we've been forming a relationship with from the beginning, and that's important. But we also want to block Andy Harris. Uh, you want to keep the bad ocean guys out of Congress, too. And uh, that's why we look very closely at, at this race. And, you know, I think if people got to meet Mr. Craddeville, by and large, he would be a guy you would want to be your representative. I, I know that you've talked to him uh, several times as well, Rob. Yes, that's right. Excellent character, excellent person, yep. and and of course his leadership of um, you know saving um, national wildlife refuges and and so forth is so important to the Chesapeake Bay area that he represents. Indeed, so we got our fingers crossed. We're doing everything that we can here. The latest poll showed it as a uh, each candidate having forty percent, with seven percent still undecided. Uh, so it is a dead heat. So if you're in Maryland's first district, please go vote for Mr. Craddeville. Or if you know someone who lives there, give them a call and tell them to vote. Please. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the then, same for Rahal's district. 
Yeah, indeed. Now, um, we're a little less concerned about that election. Um, there have been some polls showing uh, Spike as being close to uh, Mr. Rahal, and this being a wave election, uh, there is the possibility that a Republican wave is going to is going to flow through West Virginia. But most of the polls I've seen indicate that we shouldn't be too worried about Mr. Rahal. Um, Mr. Craddaville is another story altogether. And then uh, the third person I'd like to mention, we just came out with an endorsement uh, for Congresswoman Mary Bono Mack. And uh, the Congresswoman is from California. She's a Republican. And I want to make this point because Ocean Champions has always been nonpartisan. We think it's critically important to have Ocean supporters on both sides of the aisle if you want to be able to get things done. And in an ideal world, you know, we would come pretty close to 50-50 in terms of who we're endorsing. If you look at our page, you're going to see that it definitely tilts to the left because it's getting harder and harder to find Republicans who are willing to be good on ocean issues right now. Um, but Congresswoman Bono Mack is definitely one. Um, she was one of the eight Republicans who courageously voted to pass the House Climate Bill, uh, even though she knew that she was going to take a beating in her very conservative district for doing so. Uh, she established the Santa Rosa and San Jacinto Mountains National Monument, which protects 250,000 acres. And uh, she's done a lot uh, to work with and try and help the, the Salton Sea, which is in her district, which is uh, home to a number of, of uh, critically endangered migrating bird species. And she, she really helped on a lot of uh, good ocean bills, like co-sponsoring our harmful algal bloom and hypoxia bill and helping to pass the public lands omnibus. And these are... Those are issues where, again, she crossed party lines to do this um, because she knew that it was the right thing to do. And she's a, she's a great fiscal conservative. She, she's definitely true to her roots that way, but in all of the priorities that are out there, she makes allowances for uh, the fact that we need to spend money, time, and energy on sustainability uh, to protect our critical natural resources. So she's, uh, she's wonderful. We're happy to endorse her. And, and she also is in a tight race, and we're hoping that uh, she can pull it out. Yeah, this is very important. She's another quality person who is just being tarred with terrible ads for her support of environmental initiatives and, and to address climate change. And it's just so sad how vicious ads have to be. And uh, this is uh, a person that's very worthy of uh, the support of conservationists and people who care about a greener and bluer planet. Yeah, and indeed. And this is one of those situations, too, where just... Uh, kind of the publicity around an issue has gotten out in front of the facts and partisan politics have have changed the way people view something. The climate bill that was passed in the House that's now stalled in the Senate in years past would have had overwhelming Republican support. There's just a great article in Politico about how, you know, Reagan uh, and, and both Bushes were pushing for something like this as a solution to climate change, as well as folks well, like Newt Gingrich George and... Bush especially George Bush Sr. putting out, yeah. inventing cap-and-trade to address the sulfur buildup and acid rain problems that we had during his administration. So this cap-and-trade was invented by the Republicans as a, a non-government way to deal with these issues. It's just a remarkable turnaround attack. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the only thing you can, and a lot of the people that are on the other side now are people who 10 years ago, or even less than that, were saying this is great. It's just partisanship, and uh, so when you have folks uh, like Congresswoman Bono Mack who who vote their conscience, who who think and care about these issues, and are willing to get past 
the party bickering to do the right thing, you've got to help them win and keep them in there. So, uh, so you know. where are you going to go on uh, Tuesday night? Uh, there's so many different elections you're watching. Uh, are, is, are you going to, I guess, Craddaville is one of the closer candidates. Um, you know, for the, uh, are you going to, you going to go somewhere for the uh, results coming in or are you going to stay at home? And- I will, I will probably go downtown. There's, uh, you know, there's an ocean environmental coalition that always throws a party and, and I'll probably well, go up by there and, and check out all the races. And then, uh, you know, we have a, a wonderful lobbyist, uh, on Washington DC and, and, and uh, who's on the hill all the time talking about our issues. And he and I may ultimately hook up and, and, uh, go to a bar someplace and watch the results come in and, you know, we'll, we'll see if we're drinking to be festive and celebrate or if we're drinking to uh, drown our sorrows, but uh, we'll be drinking either way. <laughs> well, you're right in the crux of it all right there in Washington. Thank you, Mike, for updating us. Indeed. Please get out and vote. If you don't know how to vote, look at Ocean River, oceanchampions.org. Thanks for listening today. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Rock me in the morning.